welcome to our, uh, to our teaching series on the gospel. Welcome to those of you who are listening on our podcast or who are watching on social media this morning. We're glad you're here. And if you're watching on social media, don't forget to like, comment, and share. If you hear something here that would be of value to you. Uh, I know that we have a lot of our families that are traveling today, and we have some that are recovering from different medical procedures. So good morning to Brian and Liz and Wes and Kate and Eugenia and Marianne and uh, Larry and Chrissy and everybody else that I might forget this morning. We're glad you're tuning in, and uh, hopefully uh, some of you are at a beach, so I'm not real happy with you this morning, but uh, have a good time. Hope it rains where you are. I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> we're, glad, we're glad you're with us too. Uh, we've been spending just a few weeks talking about uh, the, the term, the gospel, and there's a certain pressure, I feel, um, tackling a topic and trying to put a topic into a nutshell. Um, we live in, in an era where we have Twitter, which is you get 144 characters to make your statement, or Facebook where you have a little bit longer, or Instagram where you can put out a picture and a few hashtags. We live in a society that loves us to take big ideas and put them in nutshells, to simplify and reduce everything down to a few words, a few sentences so that they're really pithy, or they're really sticky, or they're really catchy. We sloganize a lot of different things. And when I first introduced this idea of talking for three or four weeks about the gospel, some of the first reaction that I got was, well, pastor, I've heard that all before. Pastor, can't you just put it in a nutshell? Can't you just give us the definition of the gospel? Can't it just be one tweetable, postable, hashtagable, simple statement you can put in a nutshell? And the more that I study the gospel, and I confessed to you last week that the one concept I want to spend the rest of my life really trying to be an expert on understanding, and I mean that in all humility, is the gospel. What I'm learning in my immersion into studying what the gospel really means is that you can't put it into a nutshell. There are some nutshells. You could put three or four different nutshells, but every, the gospel, there's a fullness to understanding what the gospel is. The actual word means good news. So there's a, a historic context of the gospel. It's about something that's already happened, and Christianity as a whole it's a good news religion. It is about something that's already happened. It's not primarily a good advice religion. In other words, Christianity says the way to be saved is by understanding what has been done. Every other world religion says the way to be saved is here are the things you have to do. Big difference. Now, I don't mean to say that there's not a doing part to Christianity or that there's nothing that we're called to do. I'm not meaning to say that there is no advice embedded and contained within Christianity. There is. But Christianity entirely depends upon being able to know beyond a shadow of a doubt what Jesus did. The other world religions have a lot of what their founders did. To be quite honest and to be very respectful, um, there's plenty of historic accounts on what Muhammad did and miracles that he did and mountains that he moved. But if you're a Muslim and you want to be saved, it has little to nothing to do with what Muhammad did. It has to do with the five pillars. It has to do with what you do. With Christianity, it has everything to do with what the founder actually did. You see, in other religions, you're saved by following the founder's teaching. In Christianity, you're saved by the founder, if that makes sense to you. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done. And you can boil some things about the gospel down into a nutshell, but every time you do that, every time you boil it down into a nutshell, you tend to emphasize one part of the gospel and you lose other parts of the gospel that you have to hold in tension with that part. In other words, for a lot of, you know, you'll hear a lot of teaching like we'll talk about today. Part of the gospel is that there's something very wrong with the human race. And it's been broken for a long time. And that's why we still have wars and why we have corruption. It's why men and women have dysfunctional communication and they have for thousands of years. There's a reason why races don't naturally get along and genders don't naturally get along. And there's corruption and there's selfishness and there's atrocities and there's suffering. There's something very wrong with the human race that didn't just spring overnight. It's been that way for all of recorded history. And... That's the problem of sin. And so you can talk about the problem of sin and put that in a nutshell, but if you only talk about sin and you don't talk about redemption, 
or you don't talk about restoration, you miss out on part of the gospel. There's another part of the gospel that says when you're saved, your life is made new and you have an eternal reward. But if you only talk about the eternal reward, you miss out on that. There's a status change you get right now. When you're saved, it's not just about an eternal reward. There's something that changes in your eternal status right now, not just in eternity. So we can boil it down to that nutshell, but you miss out on other parts of it, that you are simultaneously just and you are simultaneously sinful. You are more sinful than you really want to imagine, but you're more loved and holy than you could ever conceive of at the same time. So it's hard to put the gospel into a nutshell. But we're going to try over these three or four weeks to take the building blocks of what the gospel is. Pastor, why are you talking about the ABCs? As one preacher said it, he said it this way, the gospel is not the ABCs. The gospel is the A to Z. If there's one thing in the time that I'm your pastor that I can communicate to you and your time of being part of this church family that I believe will transform your life and that will enable you to be a vessel to transform other lives, it is having a deep, irrefutable, unshakable understanding of the power of the gospel. If there's one thing I can get through to you, that would be it. I try to preach the gospel every Sunday. It's what we're supposed to do. I want you to not only understand, but to be transformed by the good news. And so we've been looking at Genesis chapter 3 the last couple weeks. I know some of you are thinking, why in the world are we in that book to talk about the gospel. Why are we in the Old Testament? The New Testament is where all the action is. The New Testament is about Jesus. But the truth is, Jesus is all through the Old Testament. In fact, the very first clear-cut prophecy of Jesus Christ and what he was going to do, we find in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. I'm going to show it to you today. We see it the whole way back there. You see, the Bible's made up of, well, how many books? 66 books right? 66 books, letters, all kinds of different genre. There is law, there's history, there is poetry, there are songs, there are stories, there's narrative, there are letters and epistles. There's all kinds of different literary genres in the Bible. And if you look at the Bible as 66 disconnected books, each with their own theme, each with their own purpose, having nothing to do with the other, then I could understand your point. But the Bible is not meant to be read as 66 disconnected books with 66 different stories. It's one book with one story. And that story is this. Here's how humankind, here's how the human race got so broken and so messed up. Here's how we got where we are today. Here's what God did about it. And here's how history ends. That's the whole book. Why we're so messed up. What God did about it. And how it's all going to play out as history ends. That's the whole story of the whole book. And so we begin to see the gospel tumbling out of the first couple chapters of Genesis. And so over these four weeks, we're looking at, last week we looked at kind of how we got as broken and messed up as we are, the fall of the human race. This week we're looking at the problem of sin. Because if you have a problem that demands a solution, you won't ever really cling to Jesus as your Savior unless you recognize the terrifying reality you need to be saved. All kinds of people try to cling to Jesus not because they need a savior, but they need someone who can do something for them. You have to first come to the conclusion you need saving and that you can't do it yourself. And if you don't get there, you'll never cling to Jesus as a savior. You'll use him as one of other options if he could deliver to you the life you wish you had that you don't. So we're going to look at that this week. Then we talk about salvation through Jesus, and then we talk about the transformed life, all the different pieces of the gospel. Let me read to you from Genesis chapter 3 and 4. And this particular chapter answers some questions that neither science nor education or social constructs have been able to answer. This chapter answers, why have men and women always had trouble communicating? It's answered in this chapter. And the short answer is they haven't always had trouble communicating. It had a beginning to it. And it is a consequence of something that happened in Genesis chapter 3. Well, we'll be able to see in this chapter, why have... So many people experience life to be very difficult and unfulfilling when it comes to their work. It's in this chapter. Why have generation after generation after generation of races and populations and people not been able to truly bridge their differences and actually get along and live in relational harmony? It's in this chapter. It explains why we're dealing with some of the mess that you can go to your news feed right now and read in headlines. 
it explains why we're there. Genesis chapter 3. We read 1 through 9 last week. We're going to pick up on 9 through 15 this week. Let me read to you. Genesis chapter 3, verses actually 8 through 15. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord among the trees. Let me just pause for one moment, make sure we're all on the same page. Do you know what major historical event happened in the few sentences right prior to them hiding? What happened? They, they ate of the fruit of the tree. Who ate of it? Both. Okay, that's good. Okay, it's Mother's Day, right? They were both equal participants in this. Okay? They were both equal blame shifters in this. They were both equal half-truth tellers, and now we see they're both equal in hiding from God. You see, that's what sin does to us. It makes us run away from a God who wants relationship with us. He came looking to hang out with them, and they ran from him. That's what sin's done to you and to me. It makes us run away from a God who just wants to be intimately involved in our life. Verse 9, so they hid from the Lord among the trees. Then the Lord called to the man, where are you? And I want to take off on this later, but I want to put a little placeholder in your mind. There's a lot of different ways God could have reacted to their sin right then and there. And yet he chooses to come to them, not in the thunderous voice, not to annihilate them. He chooses not to just go back to heaven and be distant from us forever. He chooses to seek them and to draw them out by asking them questions to which he already knows the answer. Isn't that interesting? Verse 10. Adam replies, I heard you walking in the garden. True statement. So I hid. True statement. I was afraid. True statement. Because I was naked. False statement. He hid because he sinned. Not because he was naked. He was naked in God's presence before. He was naked physically in God's presence before. But now there was something in his heart that wasn't there in God's presence before. And so he's trying to hide his sin, not his physical nakedness. Who told you that you were naked, the Lord asks. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? You see, God asks him questions he already knows the answers to. But he quickly bypasses his excuses and gets right to the heart of the matter. And he basically says, who got you into the mess you find yourself in right now, really? And here's his lovely response. Here's his mea culpa. The man replied, it was the woman, part one, that you gave me. God, it's really your fault. It's the woman's fault and it's your fault. Who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Does God debate him? No. You see, God's never the defendant. He doesn't have to engage us in things that just aren't worth his time. So he moves on. The Lord asked the woman, what have you done? And here's her eloquent response, her mea culpa. The, servant, the serpent deceived me. She replied, that's why I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, I want you to know that there are verses that come after this that simply because I knew we wouldn't be able to cover it all on Mother's Day, I know there's a lot of plans after service this morning, and the last thing you want to do on Mother's Day is listen to a long-winded message about how sinful we are. I get it. But for fairness, I don't want you to think I'm skipping over that next part. He also pronounces judgment on humankind. I'll refer to it a little later on, but the man and the woman... (laughs) Adam and Eve, they did not get off scot-free here. Okay? It actually cost them a lot. The biggest thing, you know, he, he, you remember what he, he says to Eve? He's like, you're going to now have to deal with pain and childbirth. He says to the husband, you're going to deal with the rest of your life. The ground is going to fight you all the way. Work, will, work up to this point, if you would call it work, wasn't labor. It wasn't toil. It wasn't frustrating in the garden. Now he says, for the rest of your life, you will work the ground and the ground will work you. And it will be frustrating. You'll spend a lot of your life doing things that are unfulfilling to you and will drain you. He says to both of them, there's going to be now, (laughs) your relationship with one another is changing. You now have dysfunctional communication being entered into the possibility of what the relationship between man and woman, husband and wife would look like. And worst of all, he says, you're now banished from Eden. So 
a lot went on here. And like we said last week, wouldn't it have been nice if maybe God went to them beforehand and said, let me tell you why you shouldn't eat from the tree. If you eat from the tree, there's going to be infinite suffering and misery. You're going to have pain and childbirth. Life's going to be miserable for you. You will usher in death and destruction to all humankind forever. They probably would have said, you know what? There's plenty of other trees. But that would have been a decision based on cost-benefit analysis, not obedience. And that's what God demands from all of us. So here is my attempt at a nutshell for today, the big idea. The big idea we see here may be a big idea. That's very arrogant to say the big idea. The big idea for the purposes of my teaching today is this. We are all hardwired for sin. We're all hardwired for sin. That is a very offensive statement if you'll think about it deeply. Because what it says is we are all at our core not really good people. And don't we like to say, well, deep down, he's really a good person. Deep down, she's really a good gal. Deep down, the Bible teaches that deep down, we're really not. That deep down, there are always these desires. We cannot just turn a switch and turn them off that are drawing us to do things that put us in God's place. That are drawing us to live life as we feel best. That are drawing us towards uh, throwing under other people under the bus to protect ourselves. That are drawing us towards doing the things that God that God makes it, that, that displease God. Paul said it this way. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, I recognize inside of me the desire to do good, but I lack the power to carry it out. He says, I recognize inside of me a magnet, a power that is drawing me, that dwells in me, he said, that draws me to do the things I know I shouldn't do he's describing the power of sin and he says it dwells in me in other words sin is is not something that happens to us sin is something that lives in us that you and i act on we are all hardwired for sin adam was hardwired for sin eve was hardwired for sin that doesn't mean in the garden it was possible for them not to sin after the garden as saint augustine says It's now nearly impossible for us not to sin, but in heaven, it will be impossible for us to sin. In the garden, it was possible for Adam and Eve not to sin. Where you and I live today, it's basically impossible for us not to sin. But in heaven, it will be impossible to sin. This is the way that God is trying to redeem who we are, but we're all hardwired for sin. Yes, the serpent engaged Eve and started telling her lives. And where was her husband at that point? He was with her, and he could have taken his foot and crushed the head of that serpent and said, we don't believe that about God. We're not going to listen to you anymore. But he stood there idly by while his wife was being tempted by the serpent and did nothing. She ate of the fruit. Adam ate of the fruit. And then when God comes to find them, what do they both do? They both instantly start shifting the blame on to somebody else. We're all hardwired for sin. And the Bible tells us every human being of every race, of every tribe, of every tongue, at some point in our life comes to an awakening of this. We recognize there's something wrong with me. I keep finding myself drawn to doing the things that even my conscience tells me aren't right. And all of us have to deal with that feeling somehow. And there are many different ways. But what I want to show you this morning is that only God supplies the resource to ultimately pardon and cover our sins. Because here's what every human being is trying to do. We're trying to cover that part of our life that we know is wrong. Adam and Eve started doing it right away. The first thing they did was finding some way to cover their nakedness. Because of sin, we've all become hiders. But the beauty is God still seeks So let's look at this in a little more detail this morning. We start to see the consequences tumbling out. Last week, I offered you a definition of sin. There are several different definitions. But last week, we saw sin is putting ourselves in God's place. That's what Adam and Eve did. Adam and Eve decided that, you know, God told us we can't do this and that or the other. But we've decided we're going to decide how we're going to treat his creation. We're going to eat what we want to eat. God's not going to tell us. They put themselves in God's place. Sin is putting ourselves in God's place. Redemption was God putting himself in our place. Sin is us taking a place that is not rightfully ours. And God had to reverse the curse of that tree by sending his son who said, I will put myself on another tree where man deserves and I will go there. 
Another definition of sin we see this week is that sin is also a willingness to throw anybody else under the bus to justify yourself. Sin is a willingness to say, if it comes down, God, to you taking me or my wife, take her, her life for mine. And most of us, if we allow the Holy Spirit to shine into our heart, most of us have a tendency when it comes down to admitting our own fault or shifting the blame onto somebody else, our first instinct is to shift the blame. Our first instinct is to say, well, if you had my boss, you'd know why I react the way that I do. If you worked my job, you'd know why I come in late. You'd know, if you, you'd know why I mark down the sales that I do. You'd know why I carry myself. If you had my children... If you had their teacher, if you had my parents, if you came up the way I did, then you'd understand. You see, we have a habit of blaming everything that's wrong with our lives on somebody else. Talk to a group of conservatives about what's wrong in the United States. You know what they'll say? It's all those liberals. We just need to vote them all out of office, get rid of them. If everybody was like us, everything would be fine. Well, go talk to the liberals. Liberals, what's wrong with it? It's all those conservatives. If we could just vote them all out of office, everything will be fine. Talk to the wealthy. What's wrong? Well, if we could just get rid of all the commoners, the hangers-on, the entitled. We could, everybody could just be like us. Everything would be fine. Talk to the commoners. If we could just get the wealthy to turn loose of some of the ridiculous amount of wealth that they have, life would be better. You see, we are hardwired to believe that all of life would be resolved if we could just fix everybody else except for us. And that's at the root and the heart of sin. And we see it the whole way back in the garden. We see it right then and right there. We see Adam saying when he was questioned about his own sin... He says, well, you know why I sinned? Because of this woman that you gave me. Not my fault. You gave me this woman, God. You put me in this situation. Surely you knew how this was going to pan out. I can't possibly be guilty. You know, if you're going to have to take one of us to hell, take her. It's this lie that says, your life to spare mine. You take the blame so I don't have to. It's at the root of sin you see eve do a similar thing why did you sin well i took the fruit but it was this serpent it wasn't really me it was a serpent if you have to pick one of us take the serpent not me and you wonder why today so many relationships fall apart so many marriages fall apart so many friendships fall apart so many professional relationships fall apart you know why because when something goes wrong there's no one that says I admit without blaming. I admit. I admit that I did wrong. I admit without blaming. That's what's so missing from these relationships. And it all started back in the garden. Let me continue on. Point number one. I just want to show you uh, one consequence of sin and one remedy for sin in this story. Number one, sin destroyed every relationship. Destroyed our relationship with God. Destroyed our relationship with ourselves. Destroyed our relationship with others. Destroyed our relationship with nature. I won't talk about nature as much because we see that in the next verse. But we see that right here in verses 8 through 15, what sin actually did. Sin destroyed every single relationship. And it says past tense, sin still destroys every relationship you have and I have. Destroys our relationship with God, with ourselves, with others. And with nature. Here's the thing. You and I are built by God. We're designed by God to be lonely without other human relationships. Now some of you are thinking, wrong. I'm the exception. Just give me a hammock and some iced tea and a book and no humans for years at a time and I will be happy. The Bible doesn't teach we all need the same number of human relationships. But you and I are designed for relationship. We're designed to be lonely when we have no human relationships. When you think of some of the worst things they do to prisoners in prison, what do they do? They put them in complete isolation. 
And some of the most toughened, hardened people after a few days or a few weeks, they just can't deal with it. They want to correct. They want to do whatever they can because they've been deprived from human relationship. And that's like stepping on the oxygen tank for our soul. Is be deprived from relationship. We live for relationships. And we see in these verses right here that we've studied every single relationship being destroyed by sin. We see the relationship with God being destroyed by sin. What does God do? It says he comes down when the cool breezes are blowing and they hear the sound of him walking in the garden. Now, whether this is actually God taking bodily form and having feet and walking and they're hearing the crushing of his feet or whether it's, uh, anthro- I can't say the word, anthropomorphism. It's whether it is an idea that it's a description of this. In the Old Testament, when it says Abraham walked with Lot or David walked with Jonathan, what it really means is that the, it was, is the way to describe the most possible intimate friendship you can have. Do you have somebody in your life you, you walk with? Whether it's something you actually do on a regimented basis and you take laps around the neighborhood, okay. But when you say, you know what, I have somebody, they've walked with me through the death of a loved one. They, they walked with me when I was deep in the throes of depression. They walked with me when I went through crisis, when I lost a job, when I lost a marriage. When I, they've walked with me. They've, do you know who I'm, you, you understand, do you have somebody like that in your life? Anybody, physical person that you've, they've walked with me. This friend's walked, that's what it's describing. Somebody who is in intimate friendship with you. And what we see is that this was going on in recorded history up until Adam and Eve eat the fruit from the tree. And now something is different this time. When the cool breezes blow and God comes looking for intimate friendship. When he comes looking to spend time with Adam and with Eve. What do they do? They hide. And the way sin destroys our relationship with God is it causes you and me to run away from a God who simply wants relationship with us. Makes us hide from Him. Makes us cordon off parts of our life from Him. It makes us hide from somebody who wants relationship with Him. Uh, I've seen this with my six-year-old. I'm now starting to see it with my 15-month-old. He's now starting to recognize when he's done something wrong. Not all the time, but a few times. And we have, these, we have this little, you know, two cheap end tables from Ikea that we push together to make a coffee table in our living room. Um, and, and now my son, when he grabs something he's not supposed to have in the kitchen, you know, he likes to go into that little drawer underneath the oven and pull out all the pans. Not to play with them, just to pull them out. And he, the other day he grabbed one of these little frying racks we use to make, you know, for our bacon. And he grabs it out and I say, Isaiah... Bring that to daddy. And he looked at me and he looked at the frying rack and he took off as fast as he could in the opposite direction. And he goes underneath the coffee table and he's sitting there playing with it. Somewhere hardwired into him is when I do something wrong, I need to go hide. I didn't teach him to do this. I don't fit under the coffee tables. My parenting strategy is not to teach my kids to flee from his parents when they do wrong. Now, in that moment, when he's pulling something out of the oven, I am out of the, not out of the oven, out of the oven drawer. Okay, let's just get that clear. You're going to have all kinds of letters about my parenting style. We don't let our children play in the oven. Hashtag no oven. Okay, so there we go. In a nutshell, that's my parenting strategy. I didn't teach him to do that, but there's these little instincts, even at 15 months, that are hardwired into us that say, when I do something wrong and the person who I'm in closest relationship starts to see it, I need to hide from them. And you and I haven't really outgrown those instincts. When you hear something you shouldn't hear, when you say something you shouldn't say, when you do something you know is wrong, isn't it true that one of those first impulses that comes up is how do I cover this up so people don't see it? How do I cover it up? And I have to think if I have time to uncover the why part of it because it's a little deep and it's a little psychological. Let me press on. Um, We ruin this relationship with God. Okay, it's because of shame. We see shame in Adam for the first time. We see shame. He is ashamed of what he did. Now, he doesn't outright admit it, does he? Shame is... Now, I'm obsessed with trying to put everything in a nutshell. Shame is a psychological disorder that says, I am no longer at ease with who I am. Shame is saying... I'm not at ease with me. I'm not at ease with this part of me. I am ashamed. There is part of me that I wish was other than it is,
but it isn't. It is what it is. I'm ashamed of it. It's not right. And shame makes us hide. Why? Here's the part I can't put in a nutshell. I'll try. It will be insufficient. You'll just have to take it as it is. Because for us to admit the things we're ashamed of, we're worried it will make us give up control and power in relationships. Why won't you go to your spouse and admit, you know what, I have really had a short temper with you these last few weeks. You were really right about those few things, and I just don't want to admit it. It's because of shame, but why? Because you know if you admit it, you might lose a little control in the relationship. You might lose a little power in the relationship. If people really knew what you were struggling with, you say they can't know because why? They might think less of me. I might lose my standing in their world. In other words, I might lose a little bit of the upper hand in that relationship. I cannot possibly have people think of me as I actually am because they'd think less of me and I'd lose some power. I'd lose some status. I'd lose some influence. So instead, I'm going to live with the shame and I'm going to create fig leaves to cover up everything about me, all of my tendencies, all of my habits, all of the things of my life that are sinful and disastrous. I won't admit to them publicly. I'll spend the rest of my life trying to create for myself fig leaves and clothes to cover the parts of me I don't want people to see so that I won't lose standing in their eyes or suffer them thinking less of me. And you see, you can't bring that attitude into relationship with an infinite God. No finite person can walk with an infinite God without giving up your control. You can't do it. And the irony is God says, I already see behind the fig leaves. I already know. And yet I'm running to have relationship with you. I know when my son is crawling away from me with the frying rack. I know he's doing something wrong. I just want to restore the relationship. That's all I want to do as a dad. That's what God wants to do. But we see because of sin, you have the byproduct of shame. An awareness that I have done wrong and I can't have anybody see it. And that has destroyed our relationship with the Lord. And if we're ever going to defeat sin, we have to be honest which Adam was not. We have to admit where we are, which Adam did not do. And we have to admit what we've done. God can't help us until we have an honest admission. There's no way for a finite being to have intimacy with an infinite being without losing some control. We have to get to a place where we are willing to have admission without blaming. But we say to God, I have sinned. Great illustration of this. Um, Some of you know I enjoy following sports, and a lot of what I know about sports behind the scenes comes from journalists. There's a particular sports journalist whose name is Peter King, and he was the chief uh, NFL writer for Sports Illustrated magazine. He's been that for years. And recently this week it came out that um, he was one of He was one of the two primary reporters who reported on both the Ray Rice incident, which we're familiar with here in Baltimore, and also a little incident called Deflategate, okay, where uh, Tom Brady and the New England, pa- New England Patriots were accused of uh, under-inflating footballs to give them an inappropriate advantage. Now, I realize in the house we have both Patriots and Ravens fans, okay, so I'm not making a political statement here, but it came out this week, it might have been out before, that... Uh, Peter King, who was one of the two people who reported it initially, Peter King for Sports Illustrated, another reporter named Chris Mortensen for ESPN, broke this story about Deflategate. And after years of investigation, it proved that some of the facts they reported were actually false. Chris Mortensen, the first guy to crack the story from ESPN, has remained silent. Peter King, who is, by all accounts, has done this for decades, has been perhaps the most reputable objective journalist, perhaps, on the NFL, uh, released a statement this week regarding his getting that fact wrong. And I want you to listen to this. I'm just going to read in his words. I got a significant fact in the Ray Rice story wrong when he visited the league office and had his hearing. And then I got a significant fact wrong when I confirmed Chris Mortensen's story about the footballs being more than two pounds under pressure. And in both cases, I admitted it. In one case, the Patriots case, I offered my resignation resignation to Chris Stone at Sports Illustrated, and they said no. But I would have resigned because that is something that you cannot get wrong. 
I got it wrong, and I deserve all the criticism that comes my way. I don't shy away from it. And when I think of my career at Sports Illustrated, those are two things I'm ashamed of, totally ashamed, because that can't happen. You can't get facts like that wrong. You know what I hear? I hear admission without blaming. And that's what it requires to defeat this power of sin in our life. We have to be willing to admit to God, I've sinned because I chose to. And it is wrong and I make no excuses and I want to be free from years and years and years or months and months and weeks and weeks of suffocating shame and all of the effort it's taking to put up fig leaves over that part of my life. Well, if God really knew what I was into, how could he love me? And that's the beauty of the gospel. He knows, he saw, and he's still seeking you because he loves you and he doesn't want you to live with sin. He doesn't want you to live with shame. He wants to show you his remedy, his pardon, his way to ultimately cover your sin. And it's not through fig leaves, it's through the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ. I have to hurry. We've destroyed our relationship with God. We've destroyed our relationship with ourselves. And I already pretty much folded that into the last point. How have we destroyed our relationship with ourselves? Because of shame. Because of shame. And what does that say? It says this, I know there's something wrong with me of which I'm ashamed. So I need to cover myself to keep people from seeing who I am because they'll reject me. You see, because of sin, we have a lack of ease with who we are. We don't want to admit what's wrong with us. And so we have to try to cover our our sins, even to ourselves. It ruins our relationship with us. Sin makes you look in the mirror and hate what you see. Sin makes you completely uncomfortable with who you are. Sin makes you feel a sense of shame about every failure. About, I saw this in a little boy on my little league team yesterday. When I say little, he's the biggest kid on the team. He's mouthy. He is not respectful to the coaches. He doesn't do anything the first time you ask him. He's a handful. And he is by far the not best hitter on our team. And he will stand there sometimes for five or ten minutes swinging incorrectly at the baseball um, because at least at this point in the season everybody hits. So it can be a long afternoon or a long morning. And he was up there this past Saturday and we've been trying to coach him and trying to help him. And he's so stubborn he doesn't want to do it. And he's swatting at the ball like this, like he's chopping wood. And I saw something now, the third game in I'd never seen before, on about the 50th pitch, I see a single alligator tear tear roll down out of his eye. On the next pitch, he hits a little dribbler, and he runs down to first base, and the crowd goes wild, but he's not happy. And he comes in, he takes his hat off, and he throws it, and he just sits down on the bench like this. And I sit down next to him. I say, all right, man, we got to go out on the field. I said, what's wrong? Nothing. What's wrong, buddy? I've never seen you this frustrated before. I said, what's wrong? He says, I'm embarrassed. Why are you embarrassed, buddy? Because I can't hit the ball like the other kids, and I don't run as fast as the other kids. And for the first time, I see this rough exterior crack, and I see a little guy who says, I don't like who I am. I'm comparing myself to everybody else, and I'm not perfect and I'm supposed to be as good as everybody, and I feel bad, and I've been trying to cover it up by being tough, and now it all comes tumbling out of him. You see a little boy who has an inappropriate sense of shame over something he shouldn't be ashamed of. It breaks my heart. But you know, the human condition is one where we wrestle with shame. Sin has ruined our relationship with ourselves. Jesus doesn't want you to live that way. He doesn't want you to live in shame, and he offers a remedy for it that I'll show you in just a moment. We're in our relationship with ourselves, with God, with others. Um... Adam says, I sinned because of, number one, this woman, and number two, the woman that you gave me. It's your fault, God. Eve says, I sinned because of the serpent. They are both blaming. Neither of them is accepting responsibility. Spiritual maturity is this. I take responsibility. If I could preach a series on just taking responsibility for yourself, I would. If there's one message I can get through to my boys before they grow up, it's at some point you and I need to start taking responsibility for ourselves and stop shifting the blame onto everybody else. In the garden, there's a very simple question. Who's responsible for the mess you're in? And both of them blame somebody else. And I ask you this morning, if you're in a mess, who's really responsible? Who is really responsible for the mess that you're in? We see in the garden, they wouldn't do it. And it ruined our relationship with each other because now for the rest of our life, you and I pretty much have relationships in one sense because we always need somebody else to blame. 
That's not the whole reason, right? But some of you, if you didn't have a lousy boss, would have to take more responsibility on yourself. You'd have nobody to blame but you. You kind of need that lousy boss to keep yourself from taking any responsibility. But what we see here is spiritual maturity says, I take responsibility for my mess. I take responsibility for, because until you get there, God can't help you. Go to AA or anything else. Until you admit you have a problem and then take the next step and say, I need help, there is no help. God can't help you until you first say, I have a problem. Most of you want to skip that and go to, God, here's all the things I need, and I'll even try you if you can give it to me. I want peace, I want prosperity, I want joy, and I'll pray the prayer and go to church for a while if you'll give it to me. It starts by saying, I've done wrong, I need help, I'm broken, and I hope there's a Savior because I need to be saved. That's what Paul said at the end of Romans 7. Who will save me from this mess that I'm in? Thank God through Jesus Christ. You see, all the Old Testament screams were broken, and boy, we need a Savior. Exodus shows us, Deuteronomy shows us, Judges show us. Ezra and Nehemiah shows us, the minor prophets show us, humankind is broken and we need to be saved. It also destroyed our relationship with nature. I'll leave that for another day. Number two, let's get to the good stuff. See, if I only put the nutshell on the problem of sin, we all go home feeling like, yeah, I really am lousy to the core and no matter how hard I try, I still want to do lousy things. Let's go have ham and celebrate. You know, that's, I can't leave you there. I got to show you what else Genesis 3 shows us. Here's this, God's mercy lived out through Jesus can re- restore every destroyed relationship. You see, I just spent 35, 40 minutes telling you how sin destroys every relationship. Can I just show you the little seed that God plants here in the garden about how God is going to restore all of the damaged relationships? I want to show you how he does it really quickly. I alluded to this earlier. You know, when God comes looking for Adam, Adam had sinned. And what did God tell Adam and Eve would happen if they ate from the fruit of the tree? What did he say? You'll die. So what does God have a right to do when he comes to the garden? To die them, right? Yeah, to, uh, to annihilate them. He could have just come and smote, smited, smeet. Smote, he could have just come and smote them, annihilated them, wiped them out. I didn't do the verb declension of smiting earlier. It's not a word I use regularly, but I, I'll bring it back in vocabulary. That'll be some good hashtags later today. Um, but yeah. What is it? Is it the Jim Carrey line? Smite me, almighty smiter, or something? Yeah, those are things I've never said to God. Um, he could have come and annihilated them with a thunderous voice, right? He didn't do it. Could have. He could have just said, you know what? They've sinned. That's it. No more cool walks. I'm going to go to heaven, and I'm going to hide myself from humankind forever and take my hands away from it, and where will we be then? Instead, he returns. He seeks. He walks. He asks questions to draw them out. You already see where God had an opportunity to exact justice. He asks questions rather than smiting them. Here's what I want you to remember. When we do wrong, God wants to talk to us. He wants to talk to us. Does that mean there's not consequence and discipline? That's not what it means. When we do wrong, our Heavenly Father is more concerned about you understanding through your own mouth what you did wrong because that would produce change. If he came to the garden and he said, fee, fi, fo, fum, I'm going to go, you, would that have brought them out of hiding? It would have flushed them. He flushes them out by asking them questions. He draws them in by saying, let's talk about, I need you to confess. I need you to understand what you did wrong or there will be no change. This is a great parenting thing. Doesn't mean we can't get, it's not appropriate for us to let our children understand anger, but if they only ever see anger, you're teaching them to be deceptive. Because they'll fear your reaction, but they won't make change. What they'll just say is, I don't want dad to get mad, so I'm still going to do wrong, I just have to be better at hiding it. Rather than making that effort to flush them out and ask questions, what did you do wrong? Do you understand why it's wrong? Do you understand why you're being punished? Then you start to see the possibility of having longer transformation and change. And God models that for us. He draws them out in an act of mercy. He could have killed them. They deserved it. But he draws them out. So you see, that's a message for you and me. When we sin, if you're expecting God just to come down and fee fi fo fum and annihilate you, you're going to go further and further. The enemy wants you to think that about God. He wants to talk to you. He wants to see change. He wants to see correction. He wants to help you. He wants to restore you. Second thing is he clothes them rather than leaving them naked, right? Could have left them naked. This is part of the story we didn't read, but real quickly, the Bible tells us that he actually made clothes for them, right? 
Do you know what he made the clothes out of? Animal skins. Where do you get animal skins? Just laying around? What did he have to do? He had to sacrifice an animal to take the clothes from the animal to cover their nakedness. Are you starting to see the gospel here? Adam and Eve sinned, and as a result, felt like they needed to be covered. And God sets into precedent that when we sin, something has to die in order to cover our sinfulness. What did Jesus do when he came? He became the Lamb of God. He allowed himself to be killed. And he allowed that blood to be applied and cover us once and for all, forever, for our sinfulness. Glory be to God. Praise his holy name. You see that happening here in the garden. He could have left them naked. He could have just said, you deal with your shame. But God said, I recognize that's too much. So let me kill something and cover you. Let me let something innocent die to cover. That animal didn't deserve to die to cover Adam and Eve. But you see, God is starting to reverse to combat the effects of sin. He takes action to redeem them. Here's what he says. Here's what he says. Worship team, you can come on back. Here's what he says. The very last part we read. He says to the serpent, he says, you're going to have trouble now between Adam and Eve. You and human beings, serpent, there's going to be animosity between you. And then God prophesies. He speaks about the future. He says, here's the picture he creates for the serpent. He says, imagine a father and mother and their children playing on the beach and a snake Poisonous snake, you know, slithers up in the middle of the family. He says that dad is going to reach out and he is going to crush the head of the snake. But in so doing, the snake is going to bite the heel of the person who crushes it and cause them a fatal wound. So the serpent and the power of the serpent will be destroyed. But in order to do that, this innocent male who's crushing the head of the snake, will get a wound from the serpent that will cause him to die. Here's what God is saying. He's saying to the serpent, you started something really dastardly here. But I want you to know that I have a plan to redeem the mess you've made. Somebody, some offspring of Adam and Eve is going to come along. And that person is going to crush everything you've done here. Even though as they crush you, you'll bite their heel and it will cost them their life. Do you know who he's talking about here? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The one who would come from Adam's bloodline, as we see in the genealogies in the New Testament. The one who would come as an offspring of man. And he would come and he would live a sinless life. And he would stand strong over every temptation. And he would ultimately, in the garden, crush the head of the enemy, of the serpent, and say, I am going to now put myself in man's place and go and die on the cross. I'm, you see how he reverses sin? Our, our way of doing it is your life to protect mine. Jesus says my life to protect yours. We say your innocent life to protect my guilty one, and Jesus says my innocent life to protect your guilty one. And the gospel says he lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died as our substitute in our place so that God could accept us not for our own sake and for our own record, but for Jesus' sake and for his record. Okay, there it is. There's one of the nutshells of the gospel. And you see all the way back in Genesis 3, we see God not sitting on his hand saying, oh, woe is me, what am I going to do? He says, I love man so much that I will send my innocent son into this mess, even if it costs him his life, so I can buy back this human race that seems to want to do what they want to do. That's how much he loves you. Friend, who's responsible for the mess that you're in today? Is there sin in your life you have not admitted to? Let today be the day. Let this be the moment where you confess it to the Lord. And you begin to taste again or for the first time of the intimacy of walking together with your father. The gospel tells us, yes, we are more sinful than we ever really want to think about. But it also says you are more loved. You can be more just. You can be holier. You can be in in tighter relationship with Jesus than you ever dared dream simultaneously. We are both justified and sinful. 
justify, what does that mean? I'll give you the, you, you want the, the theological definition? An alien righteousness is imputed unto you. Now that sounds kind of spooky. But what that means is this. You're justified by grace alone. It means this. Jesus imputes to you all of his righteousness, not because you earned it, but because you believe on him and you repent from your sin and you receive him as your Lord and Savior. He gives you his righteousness and he clothes you with that. So when God looks at you, he doesn't even see your very best behaviors. He sees his son's righteousness and by that and that alone, you're accepted. Well, I'm not good enough. You're right, neither am I. Jesus is and he wants to cover you. Good deal, isn't it? Let's pray. Let's pray. If you're ready to make a decision to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to give you some very brief instruction on how to do that. It's as simple as A, B, C. There's an admission, an honest admission that says, I am a sinner and I need to be saved. That's letter A. B, we have to believe the truth about Jesus that he's God's son, that he lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserve to, to die as our substitute in our place. He's risen from the dead. He's alive today. And that because of him, God accepts us, not for our own sake or for what we've done, but because of Jesus' sake and what he's done. And then see, you have to choose him to be your Lord and Savior. You see, that's where Adam and Eve derailed the whole train. They decided they knew better than God about what the choices they should make. And you and I can't cling to a Savior but not let Him be our Lord as well. That means you and I have to come to a place where we trust Him enough to be our Lord. We live life His way, not our way. If you're ready to make that commitment, Jesus has been more than ready. He's been waiting for this moment to enter into your life and transform you forever. So if that's what you're ready to do, you can join me by repeating this prayer after me right where you are today. Dear Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. My life has fallen short of the standard you set for me. But Jesus, I believe in you, that you're God's son, that you lived a perfect life that I haven't lived, that you died a death on the cross that I deserve to die, but you did that in my place as my substitute. And that now I'm accepted by God, not because of my resume or anything that I've done, but because of you and what you've done. And based upon your great love for me, I can't help but trust you to be my Lord and Savior. So I'm going to live your way because I really believe you know better. Thank you for forgiving me. I welcome you into my life. Thank you for saving me. Amen. And with every eye still closed and head bowed, church, can you just take a moment? And if there is sin in your heart that you need to make right with the Lord, would you please do that right now? Confess to him. Repent to him. Let him melt that shame away. Receive forgiveness. Receive correction. That we would be people that are hungry for holiness, not in an arrogant sake, but that we would be hungry to be clean. Well, Phil, I can't make myself holy. You're right. If God expects holiness of us, he's going to have to do it because we can't. And isn't it beautiful that God says, I will make you holy because you can't do it. So Jesus, thank you for imputing to us an alien righteousness, righteousness that belongs to you, not to us. Help us to wear that appropriately.